0: You are listening to RootBound, a podcast about plants for when you're stuck inside. RootBound gets support from tubers. Don't let other storage organs fool you. Tubers are the best way to store energy this winter. Tubers! Hello everyone, thank you for listening to yet another episode of RootBound. I'm your host and my name is Steve. Now each week on RootBound, I invite a guest who comes on the show and shares with us all about a plant that means something to them, and then I share with the guest about a plant that means something to me, and through this process we can all learn more about plants and learn more about each other. Now before we meet our guest today, I wanted to talk a little bit about invasive species. Now, both of the plants we're going to talk about on today's show could be considered invasive species. And invasive species have come up quite a bit on the show in the past. And that had me thinking, what really is an invasive species? And it turns out that the definition can be quite uh, nebulous. But there's a pretty good starting point over at the U.S. Department of Agriculture, And they have a special section called the National Invasive Species Information Center. And you can find that at invasivespeciesinfo.gov. And I thought this was pretty interesting because the term invasive species was defined by the U.S. government in 1999 in Executive Order 13112 by the Clinton White House. And it says that an invasive species is a species that is non-native to the ecosystem under consideration and whose introduction causes or is likely to cause economic or environmental harm or harm to human health. Now, that's a decent definition, but there are some other things to consider there, like what is non-native or what is native. That can be pretty fuzzy. Uh, What constitutes harm or likely to cause harm? So that also gets pretty tricky. So another document I found on this uh, National Invasive Species Information Center is a document that is called Invasive Species Definition Clarification and Guidance White Paper. Total, I love, like, government documents that, like, go deep on, like, wonky topics like this. And this is a a seven-page document that further clarifies the definition of invasive species and tries to give guidance on how to define a species as such. And there's a section in this paper, that says weeds as examples. And it uses weeds, which a lot of us understand, as a way to hopefully help define what an invasive species is. And it it explains that for a plant to be considered invasive, it has to get over certain barriers to meet that definition. And those barriers are large-scale geographical barriers so you can't have an invasive species unless it has overcome a large-scale geographical barrier so that plant has to get from some continent to another continent right that's the first step it's uh being a non-native species it has to come from somewhere else and it has to overcome those large-scale geographical barriers and that happens in the modern world all the time through shipping through people moving around through people purposefully introducing something for agriculture that ends up becoming invasive later. There's lots of ways now, particularly in an interconnected world, that those large-scale geographical barriers can be overcome. Then the next barrier needs to overcome is survival barriers. It needs to actually be able to survive in the new environment. So if you bring something that is from the desert and you bring it to some place that is really icy, even though it's overcoming a large-scale geographical barrier, it probably won't survive, so it won't become invasive. Then the next barrier an invasive plant a weed needs to overcome are establishment barriers. It has to not only survive, but it has to establish itself as a population in that area because just one plant can't be invasive. And then the next barrier is dispersal and spread barriers. It can't just form a small population in one place. It has to spread widely to be considered invasive. And then finally, the key thing to make something invasive is... Harm and impact. It's not only that the plant comes from somewhere else, it survives, it establishes, and it spreads. It also has to cause harm. And let me just read that part of this document that talks about harm and impact. It says, finally, a plant is deemed to be invasive if it causes negative environmental economic, or human health effects, which outweigh any beneficial effects. For example, yellow star thistle is a source of nectar for bee producers, but the displacement of native and other desirable plants caused by yellow star thistle leads to dramatically decreased forage for wildlife and livestock, which severely disrupts profitability and associated businesses. These negative effects greatly overshadow the positive effects and thus define harm caused by yellow star thistle and explain why it's considered an invasive species. So, I thought that was pretty interesting. I think the definition is still a little nebulous, but this document is pretty cool and it's maybe a good way to start thinking about what is an invasive species. Um, there's also lots of interesting tips about management in here. And this isn't like the like one and only word on what an invasive species is. I think sometimes in here, there's a little bit too much um, focus on economics and there's maybe things that could be considered invasive, but because they have an economic benefit, maybe they're not and vice versa. So anyway... That's what I found out about invasive species, <laughs> and uh, let's let's hear about a few, or maybe they're not. I'm not really sure. Hi, Rena. Thank you for joining me on Rootbound.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Do you have a plant to share with us today? I do. What is it?
1: Honeysuckle.
0: Oh, very cool. Um, I have like one honeysuckle memory burned in my brain, but I don't really know much about the plant, and so I'm I'm excited to hear from from you today.
1: Awesome. Well, I can't wait to hear the story that's burned into your brain.
0: It's not too, it's not too like, it's not a great story, but it's, it's a little memory. (laughs) It's a little memory that that I'll share for sure.
1: Okay. Should we start with that?
0: Yeah, please. Well, no, let's start. Let's, uh, let's start with you. Why did you choose Honeysuckle? Why is Honeysuckle meaningful to you?
1: Yeah. So when I was a little girl, my grandmother grew many things in her backyard in Kentucky, in Louisville, Kentucky. One of those I think happened maybe naturally, she had a fish pond and a deck in her backyard and the honeysuckle grew across her deck and then onto her garage. And as a kid, this was so much fun. I even think it grew a little bit on her fence. Honeysuckle is one of those plants that can take over. (laughs) Yeah. 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 And which is fun for a little kid because you can just pick a zillion of those little flower things the little pieces out of the flower there's like a little green dot on the the white string out of the flower and at the end of it it has honey on it and that's what the honey the hummingbirds go for that's what the bees go for that's what the kids go for and so i would look for the little piece that had the green dot and then you pull the little string out and then you can lick the end and it's sweet
0: yeah totally so i'll I'll say my memory now too i had that memory too and i feel like i haven't done this in like 30 years now probably uh yeah, and it's it's a really interesting thing. And I, I I we had we had this we had this hedge around my whole like front yard when I was a kid. And I I don't know if it was a full honeysuckle hedge or if the honeysuckle has just permeated the hedge. But I remember someone showing me that cool little trick of that you can pull out. I think it might be the stamen, maybe uh, if we're being botanical. But I'm not sure. And then for some reason, unlike most other flowers. The nectar kind of just comes out with it as a little drop, right? Is that is that? This is just in my memory. I haven't thought about this for years, but and then you can taste the taste the nectar, and it's super cool.
1: Yes, and from the research I did for this show, I did discover that there are 180 species of honeysuckle. Who knew? Oh, wow! And that's pretty crazy. A hundred of them grow in China, and twenty in North America. That's a oh, little wow. uneven.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting, interesting. Do you do you have any clue which honeysuckle was growing uh, in your grandma's house?
1: Yeah, I'm not sure. I Obviously, it's got to be one of the 20. But from the pictures, it looked like the Japanese kind.
0: So, so the one little thing I do know about honeysuckle, because we have a ton around my... I live in Northern Virginia, and there's a ton in this park around it. And I've used this app. There's this app called Seek. There's a few other apps like that where you can, like, scan a plant, and it will, like tell you what the plant is. It's pretty mind blowing. Definitely check it out. I've talked about it a few episodes. Um, It's like something in a Star Trek. You, you open the camera, you put it on the plant and it just tells you what the plant is. And it's, and it's normally accurate. Um, And it said that the honeysuckle around me is the Amur honeysuckle, which would be like Eastern Russia, Asia honeysuckle. And, 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 and and like this was a a few years ago, looking up about it, it is like highly invasive in this area. And so I wouldn't be surprised if it's other places too, but who knows? Like, I, like I'm thinking about that now, like was the honeysuckle in my yard as a kid? Was it the, was it this Amor honeysuckle or was it something uh, more local? I haven't gotten it into like honeysuckle biology enough to tell the difference, but yeah, there is tons of honeysuckle. I haven't actually tried to pull the, pull the little thing out of the flowers from the ones around them, though. I don't know why not. I mean, why, why haven't I done that?
1: I've even done but, that with my kids and yeah. The thing is, though, you have to be very careful because a lot of times there's bees.
0: Oh, sure. I'm a beekeeper, so I don't care. <laughs> I'll pet a bee. It's no problem. I see a bee out in the in uh, in the uh, in the wild. They, they they don't care if they're out in the wild. Just give them a little pet on the head and then move on their way. <laughs>
1: yeah, I'm more of the let's find a cup if we're going to be outside <laughs> and let it hang out there until we go back in. <laughs>
0: uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. The bees do love it, though. It's I mean, they love it the same reason we do. They're going for that nectar.
1: Yeah, it's pretty crazy. And what else was I going to tell you that I discovered? Oh my gosh, so much. You can make tea out of it, which I actually want to try because apparently it's good for the common cold. It can lower fever.
0: From the flowers or from which which part?
1: Yes, from the flowers.
0: Oh, interesting. Oh, that's interesting. Um, I'm, I'm Googling that right now. I like to Google sometimes while people are talking because when I hear something I've never heard of, I'm like, I want to see a picture of that.
1: Yes, honeysuckle tea is good for the common cold. It soothes and cleanses the airways. But the thing is, is I think you can't like boil it too long. You need to boil the water, put the flowers in, and at most, it said like an hour of soaking.
0: Very interesting. I, I will give just one word of, of warning to the audience just to be sure th- that that you Google and make sure you have the right variety. I don't know if all honeysuckles you can make tea of them. I'm, I'm, I'm just Googling quickly and everyone's saying the Japanese honeysuckle. Yeah. But maybe all of them. I, I, I say this to, I always try to get words, words of warning about like collecting wild plants um, <laughs> just in case. But I do know, for example, the berries of the honeysuckle, when they turn into berries, are poisonous.
1: Most of them. But I think even there are some edible ones, too. Oh,
0: interesting. Interesting. At least the, um, the one around me, the Amur honeysuckle. Berry, the sweet oh. berry oh, sweet ones berry, are
2: honeysuckle.
1: edible honeysuckle. Yes.
0: So and audience, do do your due diligence and make sure if you're going to try anything with honeysuckle that you have the right variety. It's not on yes. us. It's not on us. To, to also, <laughs> the, the
1: European one. fly honeysuckle can cause vomiting, diarrhea, and abdominal pain. So those would that, be the kind you don't want to use.
0: That that's a good a good point. Yes, indeed. <laughs> Why is it called the, the fly honeysuckle? Is that's a weird name?
1: Yeah, anything with flies, mm-hmm. I have like a trigger warning for. I'm not okay. into flies.
0: Yeah, yeah. But if you had to choose flies or bees. Ooh,
1: probably flies just because they oh, wow, don't interesting. sting, but I really don't like flies. I'll,
0: I'll tell you. I'm bees. So I'll, I'll give you something to swage your fears of bees. This is a non-plant related thing, but, but as a beekeeper, I feel like sometimes I have to do this duty uh, for the audience and for you. Um, if you get into the mindset of a bee, and how they function. Bees have a couple different modalities, and and the main two are, I'm in my hive, and I need to protect everything we have, or I'm foraging, and I'm getting honey to bring back to the hive. Now, in the hive, for a beekeeper, when you go into the hive, and you're taking the honey, they can get pissed at you, because you're in their hive, and they will sting. But But a bee that is out collecting nectar is really not incentivized to sting because its whole goal is to get that nectar back to the hive and if a bee stings you it dies so if a a foraging bee stings you it fails in its goal whereas if a a bee at home stings you that is its goal it will die because it's sacrificing itself for the hive so getting stung by a foraging bee is actually very rare Hmm. Um, the only time the most time it happens is with, with small children barefoot in the grass stepping on a piece of clover or something where there's a bee because now the bee has no escape right and the bee is just stinging but like if if the bees are just flying around the flowers and you're like right there next to them they they don't get aggressive honeybees other Mm. kinds of stinging insects like wasps and stuff can be a different story but if it's a honeybee and they're and they're like busy flowers they don't really care about you as long as you don't do anything that to force their hand like compress them in any way they're cool so you got to w- worry about little kids particularly barefoot that's like the most common way but other than that that it's, it's not what they want to do they're actually pretty sweet little insects because they just want to get the honey back to their home
1: oh <laughs> yeah wasps i'm not a fan of those either
0: <laughs> no they, they're more jerks they're definitely more jerks than uh, than bees they have different they have different mentalities that i mean this is not a bee podcast, but, uh, but uh, it's, it's interesting if once you learn a little bit of their life cycles and you understand like their motivations, if we can ascribe motivations to insects, it makes sense. Their their attitudes make sense for the way they operate.
1: I think they like the honeysuckle.
0: Yeah, yeah. Indeed. <laughs> yeah, we should get back to the honeysuckle. But thank you on that little bee tangent. I haven't gone a bee tangent in a while, so thank you.
1: Okay, so also... There not only is honeysuckle tea, but there is honeysuckle honey.
0: Oh yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I've Which never. I want to
1: try. It. That sounds interesting.
0: I imagine. Yeah, I wonder where you could uh, get that because you would need to have like a a place that had a ton of honeysuckle where the bees were being raised. But yeah, that's cool. Are you, have you seen like where people found,
1: sell it? Like in Italy, I think that's mm. where I saw that it was being made.
0: That makes sense. Oh, that Yeah, I should look into that. That sounds super cool.
1: It's also known as a laxative, a diuretic, and an antioxidant. Cool. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So honeysuckle, oh, yeah, it's in southern, honeysuckle honey is produced in May when bees collect the honey. And it's made in Southern Italy. I wrote that down. That's pretty
0: cool. Oh, very, very fascinating. Uh, Yeah, those like specific, uh, like, uh, what's the word? Like single origin nectar honeys are a pretty cool thing. And they're like, like you'll get in um, certain places where they're growing a specific crop and there's enough of it that the bees will only predominantly be collecting honey from that crop. You can get the different uh, styles of honey based off of different nectar sources And the honey will be look incredibly different, different colors from like a dark, dark, dark brown all the way up to super light, almost clear. It can have different consistencies. I got some some honey once in Romania that was sunflower honey. Oh my gosh! And and it's and it just is naturally um, like like a solid, like crystallized honey. Like it doesn't ever become a liquid. Um, and so like, yeah, that's a pretty cool thing, but I've I actually, for some reason, never heard of a honeysuckle honey. And, uh, I'm, I'm going to look out for that the next time.
1: Yeah. It's pretty um, light in color. I yeah. think one is like a lightish yellow and the other is almost white. Like you were describing.
0: Mm, mm-hmm, cool. Yeah. Those really like fine, almost clear honeys are, are, are pretty rare. Yeah. That's cool.
1: Yeah, and it looks kind of, like, spreadable even, you know, like, in the raw form. I was oh, like, ooh, that could yeah. be good, like, on toast or something.
0: Mm-hmm. Awesome. Yeah, that's cool.
1: That was interesting. And here's something interesting. I always like to see if there's, like, a song mm-hmm. about different things. So I typed in Honeysuckle, and have you heard of Addison Grace? She's, like, a 20-year-old indie pop singer-songwriter.
0: No, I haven't, but yeah, that's, yeah, I...
1: She's pretty popular on YouTube. She's got 199,000 subscribers. Oh, my And gosh. her song, Honeysuckle, has got 147,000 views. So you can check oh, that
0: wow. out. Oh, uh, wow. How was it? Did you listen to it?
1: Yeah, it was cool. It was it's kind cool. of like an emotional song. I don't know why she called it Honeysuckle.
0: <laughs> okay, well, yeah that's cool i'll I'll definitely check it out i always i literally do that on every episode for every plant i try to see if there is a cool song related to that plant so i'm definitely thank you for for giving me that info ahead of time
1: yeah i was like ooh, this is a popular one yeah she's got like five million i think total listens to her music so she's pretty popular
0: oh i'll check it out i had never
1: heard of her and i discovered her because of honeysuckle
0: Well, that's also a great way to discover music as well. I've had that experience with this show as well, like finding really cool music related to songs that I've never heard of. So yeah, I'm going to check that out.
1: That's crazy, right?
0: Yeah. Um, Do you have any other fun facts or dazzling details about honeysuckle?
1: Yes, I actually read... Oh, look, Bartender's Guide to Foraging Honeysuckle. I read that if you boil the tea too long, it it becomes bitter and not
0: Mm, That makes sense. Yeah, you could like... I wonder if there's like any drinks
1: with honeysuckle. Like,
0: yeah, that's a cool idea. I'll definitely Google that and put some in the show notes. Some if there's any cocktails related to that. Yeah,
1: cool. cocktails with honeysuckle that would be cool. Yeah. Oh, it pairs well with citrus, mint, sage, peaches, strawberries, and other florals such as elderflower and rose.
0: Hmm, that's cool. Yeah, I, I'm definitely next year. I, I. So one thing that I talk about probably too much on this podcast is I make mead because I'm a beekeeper. I make a lot of mead, which is honey wine, but I've been experimenting with mixing things into it. So I've started adding certain flowers to the mead while it's brewing. And I think next year I'll have to do some honeysuckle mead. That sounds, that sounds great.
1: Oh, there's a honeysuckle syrup with fizz and a spritzer, a Collins instead of honey, a bee's knees cocktail with gin, suck my honey cocktail (laughs) or tequila, whiskey, brandy or rum. That sounds crazy and interesting.
0: Yeah, I'll, I'll definitely have to give that a shot.
1: Never heard of that.
0: Every honeybee filled with jealousy
2: When they see you out with me I don't blame them, goodness, knows, Honeysuckle Uh,
0: Well, thank you for telling me about Honeysuckle. Do you mind if I share a plant with you? Yes! Wonderful. So, this plant, I don't... Do you, do you have a lawn... Yes. Okay, so this is a plant uh, that, that is, I think, a bane to many lawn owners, depending on your lawn. Um, I'm going to say its Latin name first, because I think it sounds so cool. The Latin name is Cynodon dactylon, which sounds like, like a robot dinosaur. <laughs> um, but Cynodon means dog tooth, and dactylon means with fingers. Um, and its common name is Bermuda grass. Have you heard of Bermuda grass? I don't think I have. Okay, so Bermuda grass is this very common uh, lawn weed. I know I have it in my yard, and that's why I chose it as something that's important to me because it is—it is like a weed that I fight all the time in my yard. Um, it, it grows very rapidly. It spreads through these um, through these like. One of the other names for it is wiregrass because it spreads by sending out these kind of like long threads across the ground where that have like these little it almost looks like green barbed wire because it's like this long thread with like little green things sticking out of it. And and I now know that those are called stolons. That's the, the botanical term for a plant. Kind of like a, a strawberry does that too. It, it has this wiry, you know, um, things to how it spreads. Um it also spreads via rhizomes, which are essentially the same thing as the stolon, but underground. So it's spreading above ground, it's spreading below ground, it's spreading very deep. And that means when you find it pulling it out, sometimes you'll pull one of those threads and it just like keeps coming out of the ground because it's like very long. And so it's really hard to to like to fight. And so one of the things I like to do with this podcast is like take another look. At the plants that are maybe not my favorites in my lawn, I, I did that with a with a different uh, lawn weed of, a few uh, episodes ago, and so let me. I was like, let me look into Bermuda grass, and it was quite the journey. <laughs> uh, so, and I think it made me appreciate the grass uh, a, a bit more. So, um, some of its other common names. So, Cynodon dactylon is the scientific name. Bermuda grass is the most common name that people call it, but it's also known as couch grass. I don't know why wire grass, that makes sense. It makes these things that look like wires. And then also, because gardeners hate it, devil's grass, (laughs) because you can't get rid of it. Um, But I also learned, and this is kind of an interesting like dichotomy, that is also very commonly used turf grass. Like People use it in their lawns because it is such a resilient plant, um, and it makes a great turf, and it has really good, strong roots. And in fact, nine NFL teams use it on their stadiums. So um it's interesting to think about this thing that is a that is a weed to most gardeners and to me that is actually also being used like uh commercially uh, as turf grass and then it's also used commercially as um as forage for animals as well so and it's and it's yeah so it's it's this really versatile grass um but then i was reading about the, the the turf grass and how it's being well i was reading about the grass and how it's being used to feed animals and one of the reasons why they use it to feed animals is because it's very resilient it can go in really tough conditions it can go in really dry conditions and so they've they've uh uh some scientists i forget which university uh, i think it was a university in georgia are really well known for doing different cross breeds of it and like developing it and for different uses and um it's really good in, in like the South. They use it in places in the South where it can be really hot and, and, and struggle for grass for cows to eat. But then I read this article. Uh, it was on the Daily Coast, and the article was called The Strange Case of the Cyanide Grass. And I was like, oh, intriguing. Um, and this article talks about how uh, it was sometime in the mid-2000s, or no, I think it was 2012, um, This this rancher came out and all his cows were dead and they're like what happened and they did an analysis and uh they turns out that the cows had died of cyanide poisoning um and (laughs) oh my god yeah um and and so they started trying to figure out where where did the cyanide come from and and then this article did a great job of saying you know um Many plants, uh, because plants can't move, the way that they defend themselves uh, is often with chemical warfare, right? They, de- they develop compounds uh, to, um, to deter pests, mostly, mostly like insects, but they also you know, have stuff to deter you know, larger animals. And, and the article also mentioned that a lot of like, the fun things that we think about in uh, plants like caffeine and nicotine, those are things that plants develop to, to drive away insects. But one of those tools in their toolbox is uh, cyanide. Um, and, and in general, a lot of grasses have some cyanogenic sci- compounds in them. Um, but it's not normally enough to like bother a cow. But in this case, the grass was putting out uh, elevated levels of cyanide. And I guess, at least at the time the article was written, they weren't really sure why, which is really interesting to me. But they did point out that at that time, Texas, which where this happened, that um, the area had just come out of a long drought, mm. and so I'm just imagining now that you're this grass that has been struggling through a drought. All of a sudden, you get water and you can start to grow, and you're like, "You're not eating me. I'm going to up my, sci- my cyanide levels." You know, that's my that's my uh, personification of the of the you know, grass in this case. I thought it was really fascinating, this grass that is like defending itself. Um, uh, so that was really interesting.
1: That is and really then, interesting. I didn't know that plants did that. And I did also read that honeysuckle doesn't have caffeine. So honeysuckle probably doesn't have cyanide either.
0: No, but I think probably, so my guess is with the berries, the berries are similar. Um, Maybe. The berries, my guess would be the berries have a thing called oxalic acid, which is uh, harmful to mammals but not to birds because hmm. um, certain plants like that want the birds to carry their seeds, but they're not so interested in, like, uh, humans or, like, you know, deer, which aren't going to spread the seeds as far. Hmm. So there's a lot of plants like that, but may- maybe I'm not sure what the toxic is in honeysuckle. That's just speculation, but there's a another plant I talked about a while back called Virginia creeper, and its berries have high in this stuff called oxalic acid, which we can't eat, but the birds love. So, wow. Uh, it's interesting how the plant has like, engineered itself to like, deter the things it doesn't want and attract the things it does, and that's super fascinating. In this case, this particular batch of, of Bermuda grass in Texas was like, cows, you're not eating me today. I, I'm, I'm going to up my cyanide level so we can like... So that, that's pretty interesting, and in that, that like, a reaction to how plants do. It's like an example of how you can kind of understand a plant's motivation, which is pretty cool. I mean, also, also
1: found it interesting when you were talking about the misconceptions of the soybean plant.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? And, and we have that we have that a lot with plants. We we kind of like put our own um meaning onto them, but they have their own thing going on and 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 so that's really interesting. So that brings me to kind of the final thing. This one really blew my mind about this plant, this this fun fact. I think it's actually a dazzling detail. Um because I was looking up starting, I was like I started this process as like, I'm going to look up this plant that is just really loathsome. It's invasive. Um, it I don't like it. It's it's affecting my garden. And a little bit like, it's a little bit like, you know, honeysuckle, which is the one in my area is also invasive, right? It's how, how do we like, think about this invasive plants and kind of like come to terms with who they are. So I was like, this is going to be my goal. I'm going to learn more about Bermuda grass and why it's, why it's good. And I found all these other fun facts, but then I was reading and it turns out that uh, so the, the the plant is originally from India and in India, it is called Durva and it is a sacred plant in Hinduism. And I read, so I'm not, I'm not an expert here. So audience, you know, if you know more about this stuff than me, I'm just going to gloss over this a little bit cause I don't know the details, but I read somewhere that it could be considered the second most sacred plant in all of Hinduism.
1: Oh wow. And it,
0: and it is used as an offering to Ganesha, who is one of the most important gods in Hinduism. Um, and 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 they one of the reasons why it is is because it's this powerful symbol of regeneration because you can you can cut this grass you can pull it up and it keeps coming back because it's these really deep roots um, and it also apparently has some uses in Ayurvedic medicine as well which I'm not sure what those are but but so then then it really made me rethink this plant I have this plant in my yard that I was that that many gardeners just detest but on the other side of the world it is like a sacred plant and then you know. I definitely think I have a much a much less negative opinion towards Bermuda grass. I'm still going to pull it. I'm not going to just let it go, but I think I will understand it a little bit more and kind of try to appreciate its its uh its properties because yeah, I mean yeah, it's just really amazing this thing that is like a weed and in NFL stadiums and is a sacred grass in Hinduism, it's all the same plant, which is super fascinating.
1: That is super fascinating, and I'm in Texas, so I need to know that app that I can go scan my yard and see if I have some Bermuda grass.
0: You know, one of the things that I really enjoy about this podcast, besides just learning new fun facts and dazzling details about plants, is all the other fun facts and dazzling details that I learn in pursuit of learning things about plants. And this is a good example. This song is called Bermuda Grass Waltz and is performed by an artist named Ray Campy, who was known as the King of Rockabilly. So I was unaware of the King of Rockabilly until I started Googling about Bermuda grass. But this song wasn't written by Ray Campy. In fact, this comes from an album that's a tribute to another artist whose name is Jimmy Heap, and he was in a band called Jimmy Heap and the Melody Masters, and they were the original writers of the song, which I can't find that original recording. This is the Ray Campy version. But I was unaware of Jimmy Heap as well until I started looking into Bermudagrass. And on that topic of Bermudagrass, after I did my research and kind of went down this rabbit hole in Bermudagrass, I was talking with my friend Anwesha. You'll remember her from episode six when she talked about mangroves. And she had the story to tell that I think just exemplifies that duality of Bermuda grass, how it is considered a weed by some people, but in some places it's also considered a sacred plant. And I think that's just very fascinating. And I think something to reflect on. So I'll leave you with that story from Anwesha.
2: Hi, Steve. Anweisha here. So I want to talk to you about a time when I was eight years old, I was living in Florida with my parents, and my paternal grandmother came to visit from India, um, and she actually lived at the time, and, and did for many years after that, um, lived in a very, very remote village in India, um, near West Bengal, um, but it, it had didn't have electricity, it didn't have running water. Um, so, you know, her, her whole worldview was very different from ours um and and of course you know everything was new to her in america It was um her first time visiting us and so you know we, we became really good friends and i would spend hours talking to her sort of after school every day and she would sort of marvel at everything that i had to say and i would marvel at everything she had to say um, anyway getting to the point here we would go on walks sometimes um, in the evening and we'd go walk around this pond it was sort of a retention pond in our neighborhood Um, and she would point out all kinds of plants that were familiar to her, which I was surprised by. And I'm actually even more surprised now that I'm an adult that, you know, given the the difference in geography that she knew some of these plants, but in particular, she, she, she's, she's very religious. And she, she would point out plants that were important to us in Hinduism. And one of them she pointed out was Durva or in Bengali, she called it dhumpoghash. So kash is grass. and dubeau is dubeau and so it's it's a it's a type of grass that you know was growing plentifully by the retention pond and she would pick it and show me what it is and sometimes even take it home and it's used in in all kinds of uh, religious ceremonies and pujas and in fact even in weddings when you know the bride and groom are blessed by their families there are two things put on their head this grass and um, rice with the hull still on so you know uncooked un, you know unprocessed rice that has the hull on it and that's sort of the ultimate blessing that's given um by elders in the family to to the bride and groom or or to anybody that's being blessed in any kind of ceremony so um my grandma has a wealth of knowledge on all kinds of plants and vegetables. And, you know, she actually managed all of our farmlands back in the village. So she had a deep knowledge of all kinds of vegetation. But that was one that I do remember her pointing out to me and picking and taking home um, from the retention pond in our Old Smar neighborhood in Florida.
0: My guest on this episode of Rootbound was Rena Friedman Watts. Rena is the host of the Better Called Daddy Show, a fun and thought-provoking podcast which you can listen to at BettercalledDaddy.com. If you like Rootbound and you'd like to support the show, you can find out all the ways to do that at Rootboundpodcast.com support. Rootbound is hosted by prolific Bermudagrass gardener Steve Ellington. Music by Christian Kriegeskota. Fake ads by David Lani. You know, Rootbound is a podcast about plants for when you're stuck inside, but if you can go outside, go into your garden and consider the weeds. Are they invasive? Or are they perhaps sacred? Rootbound gets support from tubers. <laughs> no why that sounds weird. Tubers Tubers
2: Storage organs.